Well, we've been doing this sermon series called Looking Back to Move Forward. And we've looked at a lot of different people. And I've kind of bounced from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Last week we were in the New Testament. And today I want to go back to the Old Testament. But I want to share with you a story. And I really, really want younger people to listen carefully today to this story. Well, obviously the whole message, but really to this story because it's important in our life. So there's a story about an old man who lived in this small village, and he was the poorest man, him and his family in the village, but he owned this incredibly beautiful white stallion. And the king in the area wanted to buy his white stallion and offered him a lot of money, a small fortune, but the old man would not part with the white stallion. And then they had this terribly harsh winter that came, during which the old man and his family nearly starved to death. And the townspeople came to visit after this, and they said, And you will be rich. If you do not, you are a fool. It's too early to tell, the old man replied. A few months later, the old man woke up to find that the white stallion had run away. And once again, the townspeople came, and they said to the old man, See, old man, if you had sold that horse to the king, you would be rich. Now you have nothing. You are a fool. It's too early to tell, said the old man. Two weeks later, the white stallion returned, and with him came three other white stallions. Old man, the townspeople said, we are the fools. Now you can sell the stallion to the king, and you will have three stallions. You are smart. It's too early to tell, said the old man. The following week, the old man had a son, and he was breaking in one of those stallions, and the horse threw him off the stallion and break, and it broke both of his legs. And the townspeople paid a visit to the old man. And he said, old man, if you had just sold the stallion to the king, you'd be rich and your son would not be crippled. You are a fool. It's too early to tell, said the old man. Well, the next month war broke out with a neighboring village and all the young men in the village were sent into battle and all were killed. The townspeople came and they cried to the old man, We have lost our sons. You are the only one who has not. If you had sold your stallion to the king, your son too would be dead. You are so smart. It's too early to tell, said the old man. See, y'all are mouthing it along with me. Isn't that a great story? And it could, it could go on and on. But during... Difficult times and trials, well-meaning people try to tell us why it's happening. You ever had that? Have you ever been the recipient of someone trying to explain this awful event that's happened to you or to your family in your life? And after you walk away, you go, yeah, that really didn't help me at all. Matter of fact, I feel worse. I wish you hadn't have said that. And we all, some of y'all are nodding your head because you've been there. Or sometimes we're trying to make somebody feel better about a difficult situation. And we want to say something and sometimes we say things that, I wish I hadn't have said that. So maybe we've been on that part of it. But usually in these difficult situations of life, it's okay to say, I don't know. I don't know why that happened. I wish I did, but I just don't know. And even if we don't have the answers... Sometimes even when it's too early to tell. And that's why I say young people, a lot of things in your life right now that might seem awful, if you give it some time, it is too early to tell, isn't it? Because God's got something better for us if we will just wait and be patient and see where he's going to lead us in this situation. But God is sovereign. 
Do we really understand what that means? God is all-knowing. He is above all. He is all-powerful. All of those things. And it's hard for us to wrap our head around it. And His purposes, I really believe, are for our good. But sometimes in the way things go in life, sometimes we lose sight of that. So today as we continue this series looking back to move forward, I want us to look at the Old Testament book of Job. I don't know if you're familiar with that. And there's no way I can possibly do justice to this incredible book of Job in one sermon. There's no way, but I just want to kind of give us an overview, and I hope to encourage you and challenge you to actually read it, because it's an incredible book about how we deal with evil and good and bad and and difficult things that happen in life. And I want to challenge you to read, but hopefully give you a fresh perspective on God's sovereignty and human suffering today as we go through it. So I'm going to start, and in the first chapter of Job, we find out that Job is the richest man in this region of the world in that time in history. And he had all these incredible animals and, and uh, you know land and, and livestock, and everybody recognized that Job was a very wealthy man, but he was also very, very connected in his relationship with God. So we're going to look at chapter 1 starting in verse 6 and read through verse 12. And I'm going to skip around a lot because it's, it's a big book. So one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. And then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to his face, to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Very well, then everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now this story is caused for many questions about God and Satan and good and evil and how God works and why God allows things in life to happen. I mean, as you're reading that, don't you go, Does God and Satan have these conversations about me? I see Dennis over there, and Dennis... I remember one time Dennis Wilson, one of our elders, he once commented, I hope God never asked Satan, have you considered my servant Dennis? <laughs> and I did what you did. I laughed. I go, that's right. I know, really. hope I just kind of moved past. But when we learn, what we learn in following these verses that come after this is that Satan really does go to work on Job. And in a single day, this overwhelming amount of disaster comes upon Job and his family And he loses almost all of his wealth in one day. Most all of his livestock are stolen by some bandits who come in and just steal them and kill his servants. And then there's this fire that comes down from heaven and kills a lot of his livestock and some of his other servants. And Job hears this and he's trying to process, why is all this happening to me? And then he gets news from another servant who comes and says, guess what just happened? He says, your seven sons and three daughters were over at one of the other siblings' house, and they were all feasting, and this great wind, whether it was a tornado or hurricane or whatever, came and knocked the house down and killed all of them. Can you imagine all of that happening to you 
and to your family in one day. All of that tragedy. And the scripture says, Job fell to the ground and worshiped God, saying, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. What? I don't think I would have said that. But Bonnie just mentioned that some of us know each other's stories, right? And there's some of you that are sitting here today, and I'm amazed that you're sitting here today after what you've been through. I think about my our brother, Mike, and what he's been through lately. And he's been here leading worship and telling us about missions. And man, that encourages me. I know it encourages y'all because he's like him. How do, you, how do you say the name of the Lord be praised when you just lost all of your stuff and ten of your kids? How do you say that? But this seeming experiment wasn't over for Job. So Satan persisted and he went back to God and says, Yeah, yeah, he hasn't cursed you yet because you took all his stuff and his family. But if you actually physically do something to his flesh and bones, he will curse you to his face, to your face. And I don't understand this. And God goes, okay, do what you feel like you need to do. And I'm like, what? Why would God do that? So we know Job was stricken with these painful sores, it said, from the bottom of his feet all the way over his whole body to the top of his head. And they were painful, and they just it was just terrible, and he was in misery. And when his wife saw this, being the sweet wife that she was, she says, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept the good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. So at the end of chapter 2, all this has happened in the first two chapters. And you just go, this poor guy. You know, it seems like everybody's against him. And even God is allowing this to happen. Why would this happen? And Job has two, uh, three friends who heard of these incredible tragedies. And they, they know Job. They know the wealth he has and how close he is to God. And they hear about this. And they did the most compassionate thing they do in the whole book. They tear their clothes. They put dust on their head. And they go. And it says that they just sit on the ground with Job for seven days. And nobody says a single word. They're just with him. And that's the most compassionate thing they do for seven days. So from chapter 3 to chapter 37 is this transcript, if you will, of Job and his three friends. And a fourth will enter the picture at some point, conversing about why and how did all this happen to Job. Now we do this too, don't we? When people have tragedies in their life or in their families, we wonder, why did that happen? And sometimes certain families over the years I've seen go, Man, God, why does that family have so much? That doesn't seem fair. Can you spread it around a little bit? Or can you make it happen to the really hateful, mean people in the world? Why good people? It just doesn't make sense sometimes. But they converse about why and how all this has happened. And so Job is looking back in these... There's a lot of looking back, I should say, in these conversations that he's having with his friends. They're looking back and going, why did this happen? They're trying to get some kind of answer from something that happened in the past. And so Job, in chapter 3, he says this. He's obviously devastated. And in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish. 
and the night that said, A boy is conceived. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. That night, may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered into any of the months. I wish I'd never been born. You know, a George Bailey statement, right? As strong and as harsh as those words seem, how could anyone blame Job for saying that and wish he'd never been born? After what he has just experienced, not only in the loss of his family, but in his own pain and suffering on top of that. And after Job shares his anguish and complete loss as to why God has allowed these tragedies to come upon him, his friends all of a sudden have a lot to say about this. They have their theories. They ask Job to look back for sure. You need to look back, Job. Because, see, they have this understanding. They have this theology. And theology is just a big word for basically thought about God and why he does and doesn't do stuff. But they have this understanding that good things happen to good people. And bad things happen to bad people. And that's how it works, Job. So we all thought you were blameless. We all thought you were upright. But apparently you're not. So you need to look back, Job. Somewhere in your past you've sinned against God. And others are both. And God is now repaying you for your injustice to whatever you did to other people. Now that's horrible theology. Do y'all hear that? But there's some people here today that still believe that nonsense. But they believe that. And so they start looking back at Job's life. So what did you do, man? What did you do for God to let this come on you? Did you cheat on your wife? Did you cheat on your taxes? Did you cheat your servants that you've had out of their pay? Did you cheat some widows and orphans that you should have taken care of and not taken care of them? Are you addicted to gambling? Are you addicted to porn? What is it? There's got to be something, Job. Look back and be honest. There's got to be sin in your life. And if you would just repent, this whole scenario can stop and everything will be good again. Again, that's a lie. It's not true. But that's what they keep saying. And so at some point, what does Job call his friends? Miserable comforters are you all. (laughs) You're not helping. Job, through all of these accusations, he maintains his integrity. And reading through these conversations with his friends, Job did seemingly at least go through some of the stages of grief. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. There's denial. There's anger. There's bargaining with God. There's depression. And then finally, there's this acceptance. And we see some of that through these 30 or so chapters. And then we get to chapter 38 of Job. And God had listened to these guys ramble on and on and on. We don't know if it was weeks or days or what it was. But with all these kinds of theories and with their horrible theology, and finally God had had enough and he steps in and has to say something. And Frederick Beekner. And one of his books says this, Just the way God cleared his throat almost blasted Job off his feet. And that was just for starters. It is the most gorgeous speech that God makes in the whole Old Testament. And it is composed almost entirely of the most gorgeous and preposterous questions that have ever been asked by God or anyone else. And it's true. So there's four chapters. 
38, 39, 40, and 41, where God does nothing but question Job. I've heard all your questions, Job. I've heard all of your friends' questions, Job. And yeah, this has been a horrible thing, and y'all think you've got it figured out, but now I'm going to ask you some questions. And so for four chapters, you're just kind of like, wow. Let's start with 38, where he first starts, verses 1 through 13. And listen to what God says or asks Job. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me, if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. When I said, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? I mean, as I read that, I go, how did, how, I, don't even, I can't even think of questions like that. But think about God saying, do you realize I told the ocean, you know, when I go to the ocean, are you not overwhelmed when you go to the beach, just the, how big it is? You know, and we just find, you know, we get down into the, the, just right off the edge of the beach, and we might go a little further, but how deep it is and how big it is and all of that stuff. And God's asking Job, do, do you realize I stretched, can you imagine a measuring tape and told the waves, this is where you, I mean, just the questions are amazing. So this goes on for four full chapters, and I want to motivate you, I want to challenge you to read those, because I think it's good for all of us. God questioned Job about his understanding of of creation, of history, and of humanity, and of life. And he's basically saying, I don't think you really understand what you're asking. I'm well aware of what just happened to you, but I don't think you really understand. But the questions are not just for Job, are they? They're also for his friends who have been there with him the whole time. And the questions aren't just for Job's friends, are they? The questions are for me and for you and for all of humanity. I think that's why the book of Job is there. Because we all struggle with pain. We all struggle with suffering and evil and death and dying and the why and the how behind all of those things. And we too try to formulate our answers and our theories and our theology as we sit around with our friends or our miserable comforters in some cases and we try to figure it out. Why did that happen to, to Craig? Well, you know, he did. Or, you know, he just was foolish. And, and we try to do all this. Or, you know, she shouldn't have went there or done that or said this. And if they had done that, you know, if you had sold the white horse, everything would be okay. But we really don't know. But we formulate all kinds of answers. And as I read these incredible lines from God's mouth as he speaks to Job, I'm humbled to even think of answering these questions that I never even could even come up with on my own because I'm finite, I'm human. There's only a certain part of life that I understand, maybe, and there's so much more. It inspires the awe of our God and who He is. So after this truly, holy, defining experience 
with God and listening to God speak to him, Job gets to respond. Can you imagine? I mean, what, what would you say to God in all those questions that he asked? But this is what Job says in, in chapter 42. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things, listen to what he says here, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Man, is Job a changed man? Has this made a difference in his life? God even spoke to, jo uh, to Job's friends after this, and he told them this. He says, you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. That had to be some consolation for Job. Yeah, y'all were all wrong. God just told you you were. I disagreed with you, but God confirmed. And his friends got to hear this same thing, though. His friends were told to sacrifice and burn offerings, and then Job would pray for them. And God said he would not deal with them according to their folly. It was folly. All that theology and things you were saying, it was folly. But I'm not going to deal to you. Your righteous friend, Job, is going to pray for you. And his friends were prayed for, and God made Job, it tells us at the end, and make sure I'm telling the truth here, go back and read it, made him prosperous again. It says it gave him twice as much as he had before, and the Lord blessed Job in the latter part of his life more than the first. There's a good ending, but here's the thing that baffles me and has for years. There's never really an answer given about why. God never says, well, this is why all this happened to you. This is why I allowed Satan to do these things. This is why he never really gives him an answer for these horrific experiences that Job is taking on. But Job was different. How could he not be different after those experiences? Because he says, I've heard of God, but now I have seen. My eyes have actually seen God. And he doesn't mean I actually saw him with my face. It's not what he's talking about, is it? Job certainly looked back in order to move forward. And what he found was is that God was never not with me through all of that. He was always there. And I believe the same is true for us. We may not see it. Philip Yancey wrote an article um, a couple of years ago called The Incredible Shrinking Planet. And listen to what he says as he kind of ties in this thing about Job and the new covenant we read about in the New Testament. He says, Scientists now believe if you had unlimited vision, you could hold a sewing needle at arm's length and look through it into the night sky and see 10,000 galaxies in that eye of a needle. And then you can move it over just an inch or so, and you can see 10,000 more galaxies in the same sky. And there are approximately a trillion galaxies out there each encompassing an average of 100 to 200 billion stars. You know, with the, the, the Hubble telescope and all that, we found out, man, the world's even bigger than we thought with technology. It hasn't really made us smarter, but it's made us aware of how infinite or how finite we are and how infinite God is. 
He says, Job got a close-up lesson of how puny we humans are compared to the God of the universe, and it silenced all his doubts and complaints. I've never experienced anything like the travails that Job endured, but whenever I have my own doubts, I try to remember that perspective, the Hubble telescope view of God. In his letter to the Philippians, the Apostle Paul quotes what many believe to be a hymn in that early first century church. It's a lyrical paragraph, he says. Paul marvels that Jesus gave up all the glory of heaven to take on the form of a human being, and not just a human being, but a servant, one who voluntarily subjected himself to an, a terrible and cruel death on a cross. And so he's referring to Paul's letter to the Philippians where he says, "...who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or to use in his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing and took on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness." And Yancey goes on, I pause and wonder at the mystery of incarnation, of God becoming one of us. In an act of humility beyond comprehension, the God of a trillion galaxy chose to condescend, and that word means to descend, to be with the humans on this one rebellious planet out of billions in the universe. I falter at analogies, but it's akin to human beings becoming maybe an ant or perhaps an amoeba, or even a bacterium. Yet according to Paul, that act of condescension proved to be actually a rescue mission that led to the healing of something broken in the universe. And we hear the roar of God at the end of the book of Job, a voice that invokes this awe and this wonder, more than intimacy and love maybe. Yet in Philippians 2, it gives us a different slant on the Hubble telescope view of God, a God beyond the limits of space and time, has boundless capacity of love for his creations, no matter how small or rebellious they might be. And that's pretty good, isn't it? And so whatever you and I have experienced in our life, we tend to put either victor or victim on us, don't we? That's just how we do as humans. That's just how we do. And if we look back at Job and his experience with God, and we look at Paul and his experience with God, in some ways they were similar. We might do well to say like the old man in the first story I shared, it's too early to tell. It's too early to tell. Because God is not through with you. He's not through with your story. He's not through with me and my story. And I'm convinced that's why we're still breathing and walking upright. Because God is not finished with us. And maybe there's someone here today who thinks you have it all figured out. And that's okay. You know what? Job and Paul did too. They had, thought they had it all figured out. And maybe hearing their stories doesn't really change that. But the reality is, is that God came to earth so that you and I could stop trying to figure it all out with our theories and our theology and accept and submit our life to Him and trust that He's really all that we need. And we need to be able to say in our lives, like the old man, it's too early to tell. It's too early to tell. Maybe there's somebody here today that needs to submit your life to Jesus Christ. And that's not something that happens easily. Just, oh, Ah, heard that sermon? Yeah, it makes perfect sense now, Craig. 
oh, I read Job, it makes perfect sense. I read one of Paul's letters and it makes perfect sense. We know it's a process, but I want you to leave here today knowing that God really is in that process. And he wants to be more involved in your process of knowing him. But you've got to submit to him. So maybe there's somebody today that needs to make that decision. And we're going to offer that invitation this morning. If there's somebody here that needs to submit for the first time to God. And he had a, I'm going to ask the praise team to come on up. They're going to lead us in a song. And if you have that decision, I'll be here to try to walk you through that. Or if you're looking for a church home, you know what? We know we don't have it figured out here. I can promise you. And so we rely and submit to God and to his word and trying to grapple with those things.